This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we're going to be going over some really exciting stuff today. I want to go ahead and get into the best books that I read in 2017. So I'm going to be going over 10 books that I read that I really want to share with all of you. And then also want to talk about some books I'm excited to read coming up for next year. Also, this podcast is going to be a little bit longer than some of the normal podcasts that you're going to see, obviously longer than what I promised in our first episode. So it's going to go well beyond that 15 to 20 minute mark. It's more around about an hour. But I wanted to make sure to go into detail on some of these books just to give you an idea of what they are, what they're all about. And also beyond that, I just wanted to make sure that you knew enough to where if you wanted to pick up one of these books so you can read it for yourself, that I gave you that opportunity with the information I present. But before we launch into all that, let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. And that is as soon as I said the word books, at least a portion of my audience was just like, ah, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Books. I thought this was a man's podcast. What are we doing talking about books? That's for nerds, blah, blah, whatever the excuse is. So let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit, because this is one thing that I've noticed as a 31 year old man in my life, as I've tried to develop as a man, the majority of men do not read. And I mean, like, at all. I mean, unless you look at, like, Twitter or fantasy football statistics or something like that, they read those. But in terms of, like, reading books or reading anything that is challenging them or helping them learn, you don't get a lot of that. Uh, the majority of my guy friends do not read. They do not read books. They do not read anything. Uh, the majority of my family is the same. All the men in my family, they don't read. And I've always wondered why that is the case because myself, I'm not a big time reader. When I was in uh, school, I, I didn't really read a ton of the books. There's a lot of books and literature that I'm having to kind of go back and read more so out of guilt because I didn't actually read them when I was supposed to. But now that I've kind of gained this appetite for knowledge and for reading really over the last four or five years, I've really had to look and try to determine what is that thing in most men that makes them think that the last book they should have read was probably when they're 18. And that's that's really the thing that I've heard. I've heard from most guys that they stopped reading books when they graduated high school. But your brain isn't even really done developing until your mid-20s. Like the prefrontal cortex of your brain isn't even done developing. So why would you take six, seven, eight years off of like feeding your brain with that type of knowledge. Like it's not something that I've ever really understood. And you've heard all the quotes, right? You know, readers are leaders and try to read X amount of books per year to stave off this or stave off that. But there are some, there's fairly legit things and concerns when it comes to us reading. I mean, you can think fast and retain more information when you practice reading. It's just like anything else. If you practice throwing, you should get better at throwing. If you practice running, you should get better at running. If you practice certain lifts or certain things like jujitsu or judo or anything like that, you should get better. But it's the same thing with retaining knowledge and being able to recall it. You have to work your brain out like it is, like what it is, which is a muscle. And you have to be able to flex your brain muscle and be able to utilize it. So when you need to recall that information, it comes up. And not to get so like super scientific, but there's actually quite a bit of research now that reading can consistently throughout your life helps you stave off things like Alzheimer's, dementia, and other mental disorders or issues. Because just think about it, guys. If you live to your life expectancy, right, which is probably for most of you listening in your early 80s, and you're the type of guy that thinks that you don't need to do anything with your brain, you don't need to exercise your brain or read since the age of 18 or so, that's about 60 years or more of you just sitting there doing whatever it is that you're doing, not filling your brain with knowledge, not trying to learn different points of view or go at things in a different way. And really, at with Undaunted Life, we're all about mental resilience, right? You know, we always talk about physical, uh, mental, and spiritual resilience. Mental is such a key thing. It's doing the hard things. It's reading things that challenge you. And so... Hopefully that gave some of you a little bit of inspiration as to the fact that, man, maybe you should read. You should pick up some books next year. Don't set yourself a crazy goal like trying to read 100 books, but read something. Try to push your brain in a certain area. So I want to go ahead and talk about the 10 
best books or it's 10 books that I want to highlight that I read from 2017. So just a few little housekeeping things. These were not all books that were released in 2017. Some of them were released in 2017 and I read them in the year that they were released. But some of these are older books, but these are just books that I took down in 2017. So uh, these are ones that uh, a lot of these actually show up on the Undaunted book list, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more in a future episode. But we compiled the 100 books that every modern Christian man should should read. You can find that list at www.undaunted.life backslash book list. Um, and whenever I was thinking about how I wanted to break down this book list, I mean, everyone kind of does their top 10 and, oh, they're not in any particular order or they count down from 10 to one or whatever it is that they end up doing. So as I was looking at the books that I read this year and the ones that I really enjoyed the most, there were they were all different and they, they all appealed to me in different ways. And so I was looking at them in terms of thematics, like thematically, how did they affect me in my brain as opposed to, okay, I'm going to try to rank these from 10 to one or that sort of thing. So each one of these 10 that I'm about to present to you are appealing to me in a certain way. And so I want to be able to go into those, um, in terms of the type of theme and the way that it affected me directly. So we're going to go ahead and get into the first book right now. And this book is the most informative book that I read in 2017. And that is No God But One, Allah or Jesus, written by Nabil Qureshi. That's actually the late Nabil Qureshi. So if you've been following Nabil for any time now, he uh, actually wrote the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So this was a guy who grew up as a Muslim, was a Muslim his entire life. It was ingrained into his personality. But uh, you can read in his memoir, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, you can read about his conversion from Islam to Christianity, what it did to him personally, what it did to his family, uh, kind of the reasons why he switched. But this book is a really deep dive into the differences between Christianity and Islam, and specifically Jesus and Allah, and of course it brings in Muhammad as well. And so Nabil Qureshi, at the time he wrote this book, uh, he was working for RZIM, that's Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. So he was an apologist, essentially. He was going around doing Christian apologetics, and specifically because of his background, he was looking a lot into what was going on within Islam and his experience within Islam. And so uh, for most of you know that Nabil actually passed away this year of stomach cancer. So that's very, very unfortunate. But he did leave us several great uh, assets for us as Christians to be able to find knowledge. So um, the two big questions that this book looks at is the first question is, what are the differences between Islam and Christianity? And the second question it goes into is, can we know whether Christianity or Islam is true? So again, what are the differences between Islam and Christianity? And can we know whether Christianity or Islam is true? So uh, it really gets into a lot of minutia. So it breaks down both of those points and it, it takes them several hundred pages to break down both of those questions and to look at things from both perspectives. So it's a very fair and balanced view at Islam and at Christianity. And uh, my favorite quote from the book was actually this. So it says, quote, but in order to follow a peaceful Islam, one has to ignore or reject vast swaths of traditions from Muhammad's life, as well as virtually the entire history of Islamic jurisprudence, end quote. So that is an unbelievable quote that if you read into the book, you'll see how he can make such a statement that is seemingly so countercultural. But this is such an important book for Christians, especially with the current climate of things that we're seeing. Uh, everyone's so concerned about terrorism and ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda and terrorist attacks on our soil as Americans. And a lot of us don't have the foggiest idea what's going on within Islam. We have no idea what the Quran says. All we know is what they say on Fox News or say on CNN or say on your favorite blog or what you saw on a meme on Twitter. But this is a book that will actually inform you. So whether you're a theist, a non-theist, a Christian, a non-Christian, whatever that ends up being, it's going to give you a at least some sort of a semblance of an understanding of what the Quran says, what the Bible says, and how you should think about them both. So that is the first one that is the most informative book that I read this year, No God But One or Law or Jesus. So I'm going to move on to the most humbling book that I read this year. And this book was Tried by Fire, which is written by William J. Bennett. So this is the story really of the first thousand years of the Christian church. And so uh, obviously a lot is made in the New Testament of the first century Christians and what they've done for us and what they were able to do during that period and the things that they went 
through. But this book goes into a ton of detail about a lot of the things that happened in the early church, a lot of characters that you've heard of, and a lot of people that you haven't heard of. And so why this is the most humbling book I read this year is because it really told me explicitly what my forefathers went through for the sake of Christ. Because we as modern day Christians, even as Christian men, we complain about some of the dumbest crap that you would ever imagine when it comes to, oh my gosh, I'm being oppressed. Like people post a scripture on Facebook or Instagram and they don't get very many likes. Maybe they get a couple of sarcastic comments and it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm so oppressed. I just can't believe what it's like to be a Christian in 2017 in America. It's just like, really? Like I don't even understand because one of the biggest reasons why I read this book in particular is it went into graphic, graphic detail about some of the martyrs that took place um, within the church at this time. And so my favorite quote was, uh, it was describing the martyrdom of Santurnius. So here's the quote, Santurnius, the Bishop of Toulouse in Spain, had his feet tied to the rear legs of a bull who had been marched to the top of a very high temple staircase. The bull was then whipped and it rushed down the staircase with Santurnius in tow, smashing his head to pieces, unquote. Okay, so let's think about our modern day problems and the things that we always complain about as Christians. Like, oh my gosh, people don't think I'm smart anymore. They think I'm so antiquated and old because I'm a Christian or whatever the thing they're complaining about today is. And let's just think about this guy. This guy was killed by being drugged by a bull. I mean, we've all fallen down some stairs or tripped and fallen and things like that have happened in our lives before, but this is something completely different. There were stories in there of people being boiled alive, people that were initially fed to a leopard and then afterwards fed to a bear. There was a story of a guy who was ripped in half because one leg was tied to a horse, another leg was tied to another horse, and the people made the horses run in opposite directions. So this is the most humbling book I read this year because it just lets me know that as a Christian in modern day Western society, the things that I will complain about about because of the sake of what I'm suffering for for the church pale in comparison to the people that lived a thousand or two thousand years ago and what they went through and the other thing about it is is almost all these people went to their deaths with without they weren't drugged to their deaths I guess is the best way to say it. they were not taken there kicking and screaming saying no 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 I, I was I was kidding I, I don't believe in this Jesus guy it's just a just a wizard I don't I don't really understand what's going on none of that happened most of these people walked calmly to their deaths or they were singing hymns so really really incredible book it is very very dense so uh, it's a it's not a particularly easy read but uh, it is definitely a beneficial read for you all right the most humbling book I read this year Tried by Fire, William Bennett. So we're going to move on to the most interesting book that I read this year. And this was one that probably a lot of you have already read that I unfortunately just got to this year, but is On Combat. And that's by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and Joran Christensen. And so I'm just going to read to you a description of this book from Amazon because I think it does a pretty good job of giving you a an idea as to what this book is about. So, quote, On Combat looks at what happens to the human body under the stresses of deadly battle, the impact on the nervous system, heart, breathing, visual, and auditory perception, memory, then discusses new research findings as to what measures warriors can take to prevent such debilitations so that they can stay in the fight, survive, and win. A brief but insightful look at history shows the evolution of combat, the development of the physical and psychological leverage that enables humans to kill other humans, followed by an objective ex examination of domestic violence in America. The authors reveal the nature of the warrior, brave men and women who train their minds and bodies to go to that place from which others flee, unquote. So this is the book where uh, he introduces the concept that most of us are familiar with now, which is uh, the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog. And so we've heard that in different movies. If you saw American Sniper, that was talked about in that movie there at the beginning when you have the scene with the father and the mother at the at the table with the two kiddos and one of the kiddos was beat up that day at school and his older brother kind of came to his aid. And that's where some people were introduced to the idea of the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog. But this book really goes into detail and describes uh, what that means. And so my favorite quote uh, from, from this book, it's actually two separate quotes are separated by about 80 or 90 pages, but they go right in line with with one another. So I'm just going to read them in one fell swoop, just to kind of give you a sense as to why this book appealed so much to me and would to you as well. So here's the quote. If you want to be a sheep, then you can be a sheep and that is okay, but you must understand the price you pay. 
When the wolf comes, you and your loved ones are going to die if there is not a sheepdog there to protect you. If you want to be a wolf, you can be one, but the sheepdogs are going to hunt you down and you will never have rest, safety, trust, or love. But if you want to be a sheepdog and walk in the warrior's path, then you must make a conscious and moral decision every day to dedicate, equip, and prepare yourself to thrive in that toxic, corrosive moment when the wolf comes knocking at the door. That is why the sheep are destroyed by combat. The sheepdog, who expects the wolf and is prepared for it, thrives in the combat environment. The fog of uncertainty will dissipate when you are mentally prepared and accept the fact that on any given day there are bad people in the world who are able and willing to hurt you. This does not mean that the sheepdog's job is easy. It simply means that he can exist in a realm that destroys the sheep. Even the sheepdog must learn to live and manage stress, unquote. So it was an unbelievably interesting book. It takes a really deep dive into what happens within the body whenever somebody is in a a certain situation. So it, it talks about how a lot of guys, when they first come into contact, whether they're a military person or a police officer, a lot of these guys actually defecate in their pants. They crap their pants uh, because their bodies are not prepared for what is happening so it's having to take a lot of what's going on internally and focus it in a different direction so the most interesting book i read this year on combat all right now we're going to move on to the most challenging book that i read this year which is how pornography harms by dr john fobert so dr uh john fobert is actually a guy who lives in my town in edmond oklahoma um and he took a super deep dive into how pornography harms the brain because most of the books that you've read on pornography or if you've you go to a church you know one of the one in a million churches where the pastor actually talks about it you normally get a lot of the moral arguments against pornography about you know the things that it actually does it destroys women it destroys men it just destroys lives um it really entangles a lot of people but this guy really he went into a lot of those areas but the stuff that was most interesting to me and most challenging was the stuff that pornography does to your brain it can literally rewire the neural pathways within your brain as it pertains to pleasure so everyone's heard of dopamine you get a dopamine release if you use you know some sort of illicit drug but the same thing happens whenever you eat a piece of candy or you watch a movie or something like that you get these shots of dopamine and so when you're looking at pornography your brain is actually releasing dopamine and you're constantly needing a a different fix because that's exactly what pornography is it starts with playboys and ends up with rape porn i mean you can see direct linkages to something like that like that is not a a hyperbole for me to say something like that so in this book uh he interviews a bunch of people that have been affected by pornography directly or indirectly uh he gets into interviews with people that have been arrested for sexual assaults and they can really link back their sexual assault to them starting looking at porn years and years prior to that um and he 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 looks at a a lot of things but you know in terms of the link between uh, pornography and sexual assault how that manifests itself in a lot of people the link between pornography and erectile dysfunction um the the stats that he releases in this book about erectile dysfunction like in our parents age or in our grandparents age compared to today it is absolutely insane and it has it goes right in line with what we've seen in terms of the the rise of pornography and the ubiquitous nature of pornographic material um so the most important quote because i can't call this my favorite quote because it's so freaking ridiculous and if this doesn't make you just buck up with righteous anger then i really don't know what's wrong with you you should probably just turn off this podcast and find something else but here's the most important quote that i read from this book and here it is quote Worldwide pornography revenues from a variety of sources total approximately $100 billion annually. Child pornography is $20 billion of that, bringing in 20% of the revenue to the pornography industry. As with most any business, the pornography industry has a vested interest in keeping 20% of its income intact. Research on male pornography users has found that 21% view child pornography as part of what they consume. These men are more likely than other men to be frequent viewers of pornography and to report that they enjoy new and exciting experiences. Not surprisingly, child pornography viewers are more likely than other pornography viewers to be interested in engaging in sexual behavior with an underage person relatedly when the sexual interests of child pornography offenders are assessed they show more sexual arousal to children than to adults end quote all right guys 
so obviously this book does not pull punches. It really gets into the nitty gritty. And, and again, some of these statistics are a little bit older, but you can just assume that these numbers are going up. There are no trends that suggest that pornography use and abuse are going down or sexual assault and sexual abuse. And this is where we really have to have real talk about porn. And, and we're going to do a, a future episode specifically about pornography. But as a guy who has you know struggled on and off with pornography since I was in my teen years and something that I've really gotten tremendous levels of health in this area over the past seven or eight years or so. This is something that if you read this book and continue looking at pornography, what it proves is that you are legitimately a moron, one, or you are legitimately entangled so bad that you can't even see it and you need to get help to get out. You cannot ignore the things that you see in this book. You just cannot read something about child pornography and think, oh, that's okay. I'll never do that. You just can't do it. So that is why I put this down as the most challenging book that I read for this year. Again, most challenging is How Pornography Harms. So now I'm going to go to the most significant book that I read this year, kind of shifting gears a little bit here, but the most significant book that I read this year was The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. So if any of y'all know me personally, you know, I'm a huge advocate of of Tim Keller's. I just love the work that he does. He's been compared to C.S. Lewis. He's actually been called the modern day C.S. Lewis, which I I just don't know that you could get a bigger compliment if you're a modern day theologian or pastor. But this is simply the best book that I've ever read on marriage. And and there's really not a close second. So my wife and I are coming on nine years of, of marriage. And so did a lot of reading on marriage before we got married, have done quite a bit of reading since we've got married on marriage. And there's been a lot of great things that I've read. There's been a lot of great studies that I've gone through, and I'll talk about some more of those on on future podcasts. But in terms of a book from beginning to end, just being the best book on marriage, this one is just incredible. So This book is broken down into eight different sections, and so those sections are as follows. Number one, the secret of marriage. Number two, the power of marriage. Number three, the essence of marriage. Number four, the mission of marriage. Number five, loving the stranger. Number six, embracing the other. Number seven, singleness and marriage. And number eight, sex and marriage. So uh, the favorite quote of mine from this book is as follows, quote, So, if your definition of love stresses affectionate feelings more than unselfish actions, you will cripple your ability to maintain and grow strong love relationships. On the other hand, if you stress the action of love over the feeling, you will enhance and establish the feeling. That is one of the secrets of living life as well as of marriage. So it's just such a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it to all the husbands that are listening in the audience today, but also specifically to those who are not husbands. I mean, if you're if you're single or if you're in a, a relationship right now that could end up leading to marriage, why not get a head start on trying to have a good paradigm in your brain as to what marriage is and what it could be for you in your relationships? So the most significant book I read this year, The Meaning of Marriage. So now I'm going to move on to the most inspiring book that I read this year, and that is... Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual by Jocko Willink. And most of you know who Jocko is. If if you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably a listener of Jocko's podcast as well. But if you're not, legitimately, what is wrong with you? Like, how do you not listen to the Jocko podcast? He is legitimately one of my favorite people on planet Earth. One of these days, I'm going to have to, you know, do a jujitsu roll with him, go surfing, go work out. Like, he's just such an inspiring figure. So, for those of you who don't know who Jocko Willink is, he's a former Navy SEAL. Uh, he was in Task Unit Bruiser, which is one of the most decorated units over in Afghanistan. He wrote the book uh, Extreme Ownership with one of his brothers, one of his uh, SEAL brothers, uh, Leif Babin. And so that's made the rounds in a lot of different uh, circles, especially business and leadership circles. But it's just such an incredible concept, the concept of discipline equaling freedom. And so you could technically probably, I guess, put this book in the self-help category, but it is not going to reek like most self-help books that that you've read or the ones where you get to the end and it's just like 300 pages and you're like what did I even read did I even learn did anything actually improve um and it's broken down into a lot of uh different sections he do, he goes into his workouts he goes into his mindset um and most of it is in bite-sized little chapters whether they're a page or three pages long uh the the text is actually really really cool i guess the pages it's like black pages with pictures in the background like black and white pictures and you've got the text on front it, it's a really really impressive looking book and the stuff inside of it is really impressive as well and so 
I'm going to read to you something. It's a, it's a little bit lengthy, so just hang with me, but it's his concept of good. So if you listen to his podcast, you hear him say good all the time. Like something goes bad and he says the word good. And so it really breaks down into why does he say something like that? And so for me personally, I'm a naturally kind of a pessimistic type of person and I don't really like to lose. I, I like to set up opportunities where things can succeed most of the time. And so this, this chapter of this book really, really hit me hard. So I'm going to go ahead and read it to you now. So here we go. How do I deal with setbacks, failures, delays, defeats, or other disasters? I actually have a fairly simple way of dealing with these situations summed up in one word, good. This is something that one of my direct subordinates, one of the guys who worked for me, a guy who became one of my best friends pointed out. He would pull me aside with some major problem or some issue that was going on, and he'd say, boss, we've got this thing, the situation, and it's going terribly wrong. I would look at him and I'd say, good. And finally, one day he was telling me about something that was going off the rails. And as soon as he finished explaining it to me, he said, I already know what you're going to say. And I asked, what am I going to say? And he said, you're going to say good. He continued, that's what you always say. When something is wrong or going bad, you just look at me and say good. And I said, well, I mean it because that is how I operate. So I explained to him that when things are going bad, there's going to be some good that will come from it. Oh, mission got canceled. Good. We can focus on another one. Didn't get the new high-speed gear we wanted? Good. We can keep it simple. Didn't get promoted? Good. More time to get better. Didn't get funded? Good. We own more of the company. Didn't get the job you wanted? Good. Go out, gain more experience, and build a better resume. Got injured? Good. Needed a break from training. Got tapped out? Good. It's better to tap out in training than to tap out on the street. Got beat? Good. We learned. Unexpected problems? Good. We have the opportunity to figure out a solution. That's it. When things are going bad, don't get all bummed out. Don't get startled. Don't get frustrated. No. Just look at the issue and say, good. Now, I don't mean to say something trite. I'm not trying to sound like Mr. Smiley Positive Guy. That guy ignores the hard truth. That guy thinks a positive attitude will solve problems. It won't. But neither will dwelling on the problem. No. Accept reality, but focus on the solution. Take that issue... Take that setback, take that problem, and turn it into something good. Go forward, and if you are part of a team, that attitude will spread throughout. Finally, if you can say the word good, then guess what? It means you're still alive. It means you're still breathing. And if you're still breathing, that means you've still got some fight left in you. So get up, dust off, reload, recalibrate, re-engage, and go out on the attack. So obviously that, that type of tone and tenor is, is something that Jocko brings all the time. He brings that in his podcast. He brings it on the books that he writes, even the kids' books that he writes. So that is something that I think is incredible. It's like truly, truly inspiring. So that is why I put that as the most inspiring book that I read this year, Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Now let's move on to the most fun book that I read this year, and that is Manfield's Book of Manly Men, and this is written by Stephen Mansfield. He's also got a great podcast. Uh, He's got two podcasts out, actually, so the Stephen Mansfield podcast and the Great Man podcast, I would highly suggest both of those. Those are both short-form podcasts, so really easy to digest those. So um, I will go ahead and give you the description of this book from Mansfield himself. So Mansfield says this, my goal in this book is simple. I want to identify what a genuine man does, the virtues, the habits, the disciplines, the duties, the actions of true manhood, and then call men to do it. I mean, that's it. Like, that's exactly what he said. It's like, in one sentence, that is the whole reason for his book. And that's why this book was so fun. So it was incredibly informative, but just a really, really, really fun read. So um, in this book, he had four maxims that he put out as the four manly maxims, and they are as follows. So the first is manly men do manly things. Manly men do manly things. The second is manly men tend to their fields. So manly men tend to their fields. The third, manly men build manly men. Manly men build manly men. And the fourth is manly men live to the glory of God. Manly men live to the glory of God. And so after he established those maxims, he goes into a lot of different subject matter areas that would be of interest to a lot of men. So some of those are our honor, legacy, humor, integrity, vision, even sacrifice. It goes into a lot of other areas as well. But those are just some of the ones that were really, really important. And I really like the stories. And so all of the chapters are kind of anecdotal stories from history, from guys that you may recognize or not recognize. 
Um, and it really shows how they use those virtues in their lives. So my favorite quote uh, from this uh, particular book, and which is really appropriate for today, especially uh, with what I said initially in terms of why guys don't like to read, is as follows. So quote, a man ought to invest in knowledge because it is part of living in this world fully engaged and glorifying God. Yet our times also make it essential. The amount of knowledge in the world is increasing. Technology is transforming our lives. New trends can rise like floodwaters and sweep devastation into our homes. Men committed to tending their fields learn, study, research, dig out facts, and test theories. They know how to safeguard their families. They serve well because they serve as informed men, unquote. Again, I cannot stress enough how important it is to be an informed man, to cultivate manly resilience, and you can really do that by utilizing books, reading a lot of books. And so obviously would suggest this one as the most fun book that I read this book, read this year rather, Mansfield Book of Manly Men. So now I want to go into the most exciting book that I read this year, and that book is The Operator by Robert O'Neill. So if that name sounds familiar, that is the Navy SEAL who was in Dev Guru or SEAL Team 6 who fired the shots that killed Osama bin Laden. So that is obviously what put SEAL Team 6 on the map. Um, this guy was, uh, again, the, the guy who ended up coming through the room firing those shots. He was also on the mission that saved Captain Phillips uh, whenever he was kidnapped by the pirates out of Somalia. And so this book is is fairly similar to other SEAL memoirs, except for the fact that he is talking specifically about one of the most famous missions in the history of the SEAL community. And so it is it is a really exciting book because it goes into, yes, his early years as uh, just a kid, his early years as a SEAL, uh, him going through BUDS. It's not a necessarily unique view in terms of how difficult BUDS is. That's kind of something we see in all SEAL memoirs. But it, it is a really, really incredible book. And once it gets into all the things that surrounded the mission to uh, kill Osama bin Laden. It, it gets really, really awesome. So my favorite quote from this book is really after uh, they did a couple of uh, direct action missions. This was kind of the quote he put out there, and it was really, really fantastic. So here it is, quote, in our after action assessment, my boss and I were going through the list we'd made and started counting. With two dogs and 17 seals, we'd killed all 19 of the terrorists without hurting one woman or child or taking any casualties. The next day, the locals, who'd been terrorized by this Al-Qaeda cell for four years, realized that all of their oppressors were dead. We could see their reaction because we had aircraft circling overhead, watching in case any more bad guys showed up to bury the dead. No more bad guys, just a big celebration. The party got so big, with all these jubilant people drinking juice and dancing in the street, that the newspaper in Baghdad sent a reporter up there. He asked, Who did this? Who came last night? The woman responded, Ninjas. And they came with lions. That was the headline the next day in Baghdad. I mean, that is literally one of the coolest quotes that I've ever read in, read in any military memoir. So when this woman responded to the reporter, Ninjas. They came with lions like that is just so, so cool. So I know that uh, seeing that was really a big boon for the guys and and that really helped them as they went on future missions that that's what they were over there for. So a lot of people get twisted up in the politics of of what's going on over there. And they, they tell you all the conspiracy theories about oil and all this garbage. But really, they're over there and they're taking these. Uh, oppressed people out of the jaws of these monsters over there. And so it was really, really cool to hear him specify a book or sorry, a, a occurrence like that, that went on over there. So again, the most exciting book that I read this year, the operator. Now I got two books left and I'm going to do my least favorite and my favorite book of the year. So let's go ahead and start with my least favorite. My least, oh man, it's like I get mad all over again whenever I think about this book. So my least favorite book that I read this year is Find Your Why by Simon Sinek. Some of you, as soon as I said that, you're like, wait a minute, Simon Sinek's like, he's a big time guy. He's like a Ted talk guy. He wrote, you know, start with why, which was a big uh, successful book and, you know, New York times bestseller. And he, he does all this business consulting and everything. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry. This book was not only the worst book that I read this year, the, like the least favorite book that I read this year, it might be the worst book I've ever read in my entire life. And I'm not 
trying to be exaggerative. I'm really not. It was just, I couldn't believe how bad the book was by the time I finished it. It only took me about an hour, hour and a half to read it. But uh, this book, uh, Find Your Why, is the prequel to his book, Start With Why. So Start With Why took everybody by storm in, in business and all the TED Talk circles uh, several years ago. But people got to the end of the book, Start With Why, and they're like, well, but wait a minute, Simon. Like, I don't even know what my why is. And so this book is like a prequel book to Start With Why, but it came out after the fact. So he's kind of trying to go backwards and trying to help people figure out what their why is so that they can springboard into starting with why. But, oh, man, it was just such a mind-numbing read. And so I don't normally uh, do reviews like on on Amazon or anything like that. Uh, I normally just let things go. But literally, as soon as I finished reading this book, like I, I just felt compelled to go on and share my thoughts on it. So as opposed to just giving that to you again, I, I'm just going to read it to you. So I'm going to read the one-star review I gave this book on Amazon. And so the title of my review is Heaping Pile of Self-Help Trash if that kind of gives you any idea of where this is going to go. So here we go. Heaping pile of self-help trash. I do not normally write reviews for books that I read, but when I do, it is usually because the book was especially incredible. This book was the exact opposite. I tend to stay away from self-help books, and this latest writing by Sinek reminded me why I do so. I understand that there is sometimes genius in simplicity, but the concepts in this book are so elementary that it's painful to read. There is nothing new in these pages. I have not read Start With Why, so perhaps this is just a terrible part two. I'm sure Sinek will make millions off of this book, and it is only because of the sheep that that read it won't realize how unoriginal the content is. It is... In the least exaggerative way that I can say it, I cannot ever suggest that anyone ever read this book. End quote. Okay, so again, this book was just so bad, I I can't suggest that anybody read it because... There's nothing in here that's going to be moving to you. I, for the guys that are listening to this type of podcast, I just don't see it appealing to you in any way. Um, and one of the big things about this book was getting you to write a why statement. So basically figuring out your why and putting it into a statement. This was really when the book kind of took a turn for me where I was just like, is this guy for real? So this is Simon Sinek, like the, the Brainiac genius guy. This is his why statement. To inspire people to do the things that inspire them so that together we can change our world. That's it. That's legitimately it. To inspire people to do the things that inspire them so that together we can change our world. Like legitimately the least specific thing that you could possibly say. Like you could have said anything else and it may have been more specific than that. Like what do you mean by inspire people? How are you going to inspire them? What do you mean by together? Do you mean you and all the people in your family, you and all the people on the planet so we can change our world? What do you mean by change the world? Change it negatively, positively, I'm assuming positively, but it was just from that point that I saw his statement, which was literally like in the first third of the book, it was just a nosedive from that point. So Again, if someone gets this for you at work, which is how it happened with me, my boss who I love, like that's my boy, he he gave that to me and it was just kind of like, hey, man, and I was honest with him afterwards, I told him I didn't enjoy it and why, and, and he understood, it just wasn't really uh, my cup of tea. So again, least favorite book I read this, this year was Find Your Why by Simon Sinek. So we are going to put that in the past and now we're going to move on to my final book that I'm going to share with you today from my list of books that I read in 2017. So my favorite book I read this year is called The Phenomenon, written by Rick Ankiel and Tim Brown. So um, if any of you are baseball people, you are definitely going to like this book, especially if you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Uh, this is going to be right up your alley because you know the story so intimately of Rick Ankiel. But really, if you're, if you're a sports person or a baseball person, this is a really, really fantastic book. So um, if the name Rick Ankiel sounds familiar to you, in the early late 90s and early 2000s, like 1999, 2000, he was the next big thing pitcher. He was a left-handed pitcher being compared to Sandy Koufax. He was a St. Louis Cardinal, you know, one of the six um, classic legendary franchises in baseball. And he was it. Like, he was young. Uh, he was competitive, super athletic. He could even hit a little bit, but he was the Mr. Everything pitcher. Um, but really, it all started to fall apart for him almost immediately after he got to the majors. 
So, and it really fell apart for him in the 2000 postseason in game one of the National League Division Series. So, at the time, uh, the Cardinals regular ace pitcher, Daryl Kyle, who, uh, who has since passed away, but he was supposed to go in game one, but he was dealing with some ailments. So, this kid, this young kid, was going to start game one of the National League Division Series against Greg Maddox and the Braves. So, and this was like Greg Maddox when he was in the middle of being like the, the nutty professor Greg Maddox, like insane, can't hit this guy, throwing like 80 pitch, you know, complete games. Um, but the reason why most people remember who Rick Ankiel is, is because of what happened in that game. Uh, first couple innings went fine, but in the third inning of that game, he could not only not find the strike zone, he couldn't find the catcher. I think in the third inning of that game, he threw five pass balls. And these were not, you know, curve balls or hard sliders in the dirt that just kind of skipped away from the catcher. These were balls that sailed so far over the catcher's head. Like, they just hit the backstop on a line. Um, And really, from that point forward, things did not improve. Uh, He ended up, over the next couple of years, trying to figure out what was going on, seeing psychologists, seeing different people to try to figure out what the ailment was. Maybe it was a mechanical issue. But he he never figured it out. Uh, Some people call it the yips. So it's like you could do something, but you can't anymore. It's affected a lot of players, especially in baseball over the years. Um, But it really... it's a story of it's a biography of him describing what was going on at the time and then how he ended up coming back if you know his story you know that he eventually came back years later as an outfielder he spent several years at the end of his career as an outfielder which was incredibly amazing story but here's the thing is it's another sports biography right we've all seen those we've all we've all heard them but this is maybe the most uniquely written bio that I've ever read because by biographies, you normally uh, assume that they will go a certain way. You know, chapter one, you know, I was born in this town to these parents and this was the street I grew up on and here's my brothers and sisters. And then you just kind of go along and then I discovered baseball and then I went to high school and then here I got to draft it. It's that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, it's a very time honored tradition to write biographies that way. But this biography skipped around a bunch. Um, it skipped around, but it wasn't in a way that was confusing. It wasn't like a Stephen King book, but it just skipped around in a way where, uh, you were understanding what was happening to him in real time, but then understanding how it attached to things that happened early in his life. It's kind of hard to describe, but really, really fantastic read. Um, I just really enjoyed, uh, reading through this book. And again, the, just the most unique, um, take that I've seen on a biography in a long time. So here's actually, uh, my favorite quote from this book, which will give you a little bit of insight into how I'm saying it's it's written a little bit differently because you can tell this is just kind of stream of consciousness. So this is, you know, modern day Rick Ankiel just kind of describing what was going on with him. So here's the quote, quote, clinically, I believe what happened is this. I don't know. And neither does anyone else. They can tell you they do. They don't. They can guess. Doesn't mean it's true. One moment I was a pitcher. The next I was a patient, a project a cautionary tale, a lab rat, a fairly miserable human being. I was, quite suddenly, my father's son, a casualty of the game, of a broken family, of a heartless world, of all the stuff that may or may not have been swirling around in my head. I drew back my arm, and it was the last time I wouldn't think about it. With a single throw, I joined the list. Steve Blass, Chuck Knobloch, Mark Wollers, Steve Sachs, Mackie Sasser, on and on. Rick Ankiel. Ready? It's an anxiety disorder. No, it's misplaced focus. Unless it's plain old performance anxiety, which I suppose is something very close to choking, except nobody likes that word. Your brain quit on you. Unless, and this was something to think about, your brain knew best, and it really was protecting you. You don't want to throw this pitch. It's not going to end well, so I won't let you throw it. It's a neurological disorder. Narrower? How about focal dystonia, in which one's muscles contract involuntarily? Broader? The old-time golfers called it the yips. Older time than that? Whiskey fingers. Yes, it's neurological. Unless it's psychological, or physical, or all of it, all balled up into one large sob. Damn, man, just pick up the ball and throw it. Johnny Miller, the golfer, once told Golf Digest in a moment of vulnerability, I have a wire corroded in my head. It's an organic disease of the brain, except it's never shown up in an autopsy. It's learned, unlearned, and learned again. It's visible in life, invisible in death, and I don't know after that. 
It's ball players, archers, piano players, darts players, free throw shooters, cricket bowlers, putters, quarterbacks, and even riders. It's not physical, it's mental. It's a small seizure. It's a medium seizure. That sound physical. It's not a seizure at all. It's a spark of fear, of humiliation, of regret before the fact. That sounds mental. It's genetic. They think it could be genetic. You know what it's not? Genetic, I'm guessing. End quote. Again, that's kind of a frantic sentence there, but that really goes into what was going on in this guy's brain. And so it goes into how he was trying to self-medicate and he would drink a lot and just the things that were going on in his life, how it attached to the things that were going on early in his childhood with his father, just a lot of really, really crazy stuff. So one of the best biographies that I've ever read by far, great baseball book. Again, my favorite book that I read this year, The Phenomenon. So those are the 10 books that I read this year that I really enjoyed. I obviously read more than that, but those are the ones that I thought all of you would enjoy hearing about. So give me your feedback on those. Let me know uh, if you've read some of those, what you thought of them. And then also uh, share with me books that you you read this year that were not on that list that you think would be good for me to read. Obviously, I mentioned the book list earlier. That's something that we are going to be updating from time to time. Uh, so that book is not, or that list rather, is not just a list that's just going to stay there like that. We're going to be putting books on and taking books off. So please let me know what books that you read this year. But before I let you go, I am going to describe to you the top 10 books that I'm most looking forward to reading in 2018. So I'll go through this actually rather quickly. I'm not going to really go too far into each one of these books, but these are 10 books that are on my reading list that I'm ready to get after and read next year. So I want to see if any of you have read those, be sure to let me know if you have, but I'm just going to go through these real quick. So here's the 10 books that I'm looking forward to reading in 2018. Um, and uh, sorry, most of these have not been, uh, uh, some some of these books are, are obviously older. Some have not been released yet. So just wanted to make that one quick point. So the first is When Violence is the Answer by Tim Larkin. So that's kind of self-explanatory. When Violence is the Answer. The second is The Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan B. Peterson. Jordan Peterson is obviously, he was that professor up at the University of Toronto that was refusing to say all these, you know, crazy uh, different pronouns to describe different genders and since then has gone on to do quite a bit of different things he's been on joe rogan's podcast uh been on jocko willing's podcast just really really interesting guy psychologist clinical psychologist so that's his book that he's going to be releasing in january of 2018 the other book or another book that i want to read next year is the gulag archipelago by alexander solzhenitsyn so uh this is actually a book that um, jordan peterson has suggested that every american should read and so amazon actually describes the book like this so drawing on his own experiences before during and after his 11 years of incarceration and exile on evidence provided by more than 200 fellow prisoners and on Soviet archives, Solzhenitsyn reveals with torrential narrative and dramatic power the entire apparatus of Soviet repression, the state within the state that once ruled all-powerfully with its creation by Lenin in 1918. So that sounds like a nice, easy read, doesn't it? All right, that's another one I want to read. So another one after that is Understanding Gender Dysphoria by Mark A. Yarhouse. So again, as as Christians, we can't really put our heads in the sand when there are really important cultural issues. We can't just be downstream of culture. We can't just go with culture. It's important for us as Christians to understand certain issues. Obviously, one of the most hot-button issues right now is on uh, transgenderism. And so we really need to have an understanding clinically of what gender dysphoria is and how it's manifested itself in modern culture. Another book I want to read is The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. Again, there's a ton of different uh, bi- biographies out there about Theodore Roosevelt. This one is seen by many as one of the best. It's, it's the first in a three-part series, so I want to take that down this year. The next is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Uh, obviously, me doing jujitsu now, you've heard a lot of people say in jujitsu that ego is one of the biggest enemies of people in jujitsu, so I'm very interested to take down this book. The next is Five Proofs of the Existence of God by Edward, I think it's Fesser. So Five Proofs of the Existence of God. This book was actually recommended on um, a different podcast I listened to, Ben Shapiro. Uh, he's a political commentator. So uh, he's a um, tradition, uh, he's he's Jewish. Um, and one of the things that he does from time to time is he will go to universities and debate, mainly political debates, but he does debates uh, with theists as well. And so this is going to be apparently an interesting book on uh, different 
proofs that kind of look at why believing in God is a logical thing to do. Uh, the next book is Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing. So this is obviously a really old book that I'm sure a lot of you have read up to this point, but it just talks about uh, the guy who went to Antarctica and went on this exploratory mission and kind of what it took for him and his crew to survive. Uh, the next book is Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch by Jonathan Goschall. And so I'm really excited to read that one because obviously getting into jujitsu and having been a fan of MMA for most of my life, um, that's going to be a really interesting thing because it's going to break down the psychological reasons for that. And the final book that I'm going to read next year, and I'm basically saying this more so so that y'all can keep me accountable, but I am going to be reading The Odyssey by Homer. So I know a lot of you have read that before, but I have not taken down that book. Uh, I'm not a great reader when it comes to my speed and my comprehension. So taking down like a thousand pages of uh, ancient poetry is not necessarily something that I would want to do all the time, but uh, it's obviously a classic book. It's something that I think most men should read. It's on the hundred uh, the list of the hundred books that I think every man should read. So those are the 10 books that I'm most excited, uh, to read next year. And just so all of you know, all the books that I talked about earlier, uh, the books that I said were the best of 2017 and the books I'm going to read next year. All of those are linked in the show notes. So you can obviously find those on, on whatever, you know, Kindle or iPad or whatever, uh, store you want to use for that for an e-reader. And then, um, I left all of the Amazon links on there for you. And obviously we would suggest that you go to a local bookstore if that's what you're into to get those books as well. So one thing that we're going to be doing at the end of every podcast is um, we're going to do a quick resilience boost because as most of you uh, remember, we are a men's ministry and our mission is to cultivate manly resilience. And specifically that means providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today I want to just keep in this theme of mental resilience and I want to suggest a book for you to read. It is my favorite book that I've ever read, and it is Fearless by Eric Blem. So I don't want to say a whole lot about this because I know I've described a lot of different books to you today, but this is a biography of Adam Brown, who was a Navy SEAL that passed away on mission overseas, and it's just one of the most incredible books about a man's life because it's not just, you know, he was born, he always wanted to be a commando, he went to Bud's, it was tough, but he made it, and it's just not that same type of book. It just goes into how this guy should have never even been in the Navy much less been a Navy SEAL, much less been a guy that made it all the way to SEAL Team 6. And so just just an incredible book that really talks about the resilience of the human spirit and also when that spirit depends on God. So thank you all so much for listening today. I know we went over a lot of different materials. Hopefully this was good for you um, and that you, this is something that you can interact with us on. Let us know what books that you've, uh, that you've read that you would like us to read, things that you want us to add to the list, whatever. So please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google play and refer your friends to listen to this podcast and share on social media if we deserve a five-star review please leave one for us our website is www.undaunted.life follow us on instagram and twitter at undaunted life and on facebook.com backslash undaunted life and as always we want to thank august burns red for allowing us to use their music library for our content the intro outro music on this podcast today is their song king of sorrow which is off their latest release from this year phantom anthem so links for that are in the description i'm your host kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. 